Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Thank you, Dr. Lewis, and thank you, faculty of the uh, English 210 and others who may be here, and thank you also, students, for coming out on a Wednesday night, which uh, just before uh, midterm exams cannot be that pleasant. Um, and thank you, too, to the um, uh, Office of Academic Affairs, to the, uh, the academic um, vice president and uh, academic uh, Vice Vice President, <laughs> uh, for their support of the, uh, of, the, um, of the lecture. The title of the lecture is Distension, Intention, Extension, the Coherence of the Three Parts of St. Augustine's Confessions. Um, let me just preface this with uh, the remarks that it is hotly debated and has been for decades, uh, many decades, what the, um, how the um, Confessions coheres. Uh, how the three parts uh, fit together, if uh, they fit together at all. So that's really what I'm addressing in this lecture. Our hearts are made to praise God. They can only find rest in that praise. Why then do our hearts spend their earthly time in restlessness? Concupiscence in its three forms, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, Concupiscence causes our hearts to be scattered among the contingent goods of the world, and our hearts, so dispersed, cannot even know the soul, much less God. Therefore, we must learn the nature of creation, and of the soul, and of God. And by means of continence, gather our hearts into unity and seek our rest above. That is the teaching of the Confessions of St. Augustine of Hippo, stated clearly and concisely. But how does the reader find this teaching in the mass of facts and arguments contained in what seems to be an arbitrary juxtaposition of three incoherent parts? The purpose of this paper is to demonstrate how the three parts or sections of the Confessions do indeed co-inhere. This will be accomplished by means of a nuanced reading of Dr. Robert D. Krauss's interpretation of the pattern of the Confessions. Not long after his conversion to Christ, Augustine observed that only two objects are worthy of the philosopher's attention, the soul and God. Later in his life, Augustine commented that the moments of the philosophical life, the life of true philosophy, the Christian life, are the, mo are the movements from exterior things to interior things, and from inferior things to superior things, ab exterioribus ad interiora, ab inferioribus ad superiora. These observations are complementary. To study the soul, a philosopher must first examine and understand the creation in which he lives, and then withdraw from it. To study God, the philosopher must first examine and understand his own immaterial soul, and then rise above it. These insights into the philosophical life govern the structure of the Confessions. In books one through nine, Augustine explores what he remembers of his own life and experience, 
and he discerns how he came to understand that immaterial spirit exists, and that both the rational soul and God are such. He also discovers that union with God must come not only through a better philosophy, the Neoplatonic, but also by embracing Christ, who fits the soul for union with God. These things are the exteriora. In Book 10, Augustine admits us into his own immaterial soul as he explores it for God's place, shows what hinders it from attaining God, and finally stands in praise at the altar. These things are the interiora and inferiora. Finally, in books 11 through 13, he turns above his own soul, and above every soul, to conduct his readers into the word of God. Here we explore together, not now by watching Augustine, but together as the church, the causes of our alienation from reality and from God the Father. And we do this by the distension of our hearts in time. Here we discover our true place by the intention of our hearts towards the heaven of heavens through God's word. And here we learn the role of the Holy Spirit in drawing our love upwards to God by the extension of our hearts by means of the natural gravity of our love. These are the superiora. The pattern just introduced, exteriora, and then interiora, inferiora together, and finally superiora, was discovered by Dr. Krauss, who published his discovery in 1976. Krauss said of this pattern that, quote, it moves from the phenomenal description of biography, books one to nine, to psychology, book 10, and thence to theology, books 11 through 13. But that was not all. Krauss also discerned that the same triformal scheme, his words, was the ordering principle within each section of the work. Quote, the biographical books, Krauss says, first recount the author's external involvement in a plethora of experiment, then move on with his turning inward and the unification of self in conversion, and have their climax in the vision at Ostia. Book 10 begins with the activities of the soul ad extra, towards the outside, but moves quickly beyond this natural power to the inner soul of the inner life of the soul, memoria, memory. And in the innermost recess of memoria, discovers the presence of God, not as a part of memory, but above it, illuminating its activity. In books 11 to 13, once again, the triformal pattern appears. Creation as exteriora in temporal succession, interiora in its abiding formal reality in the heaven of heavens, and superiora in the Sabbath unity." End quote. That was all Dr. Krauss. Dr. Krauss's insight about the existence of this triformal pattern is right, in my opinion. However, in his account of its operation in the individual sections of the whole work, I think he insufficiently considered the third term in Augustine's view of the moments of the philosophical life, the inferiora. The suggestion that even the redeemed soul is yet created and distended in time. In fact, this moment of the philosophical life falls from view in Krauss's account. Specifically, after reading about Augustine's discovery in Book 10 of God as he illuminates the soul from above, 
one must still account for Augustine's extensive self-examination, which itself is analogous to Augustine's perplexities after his successful Platonic ascent to God in Book 7. Also, after reading the glorious exegesis of the heaven of heavens in Book 11, one must still account for the very present danger of differing interpretations of the same scriptural passages, a danger the dimensions of which can be seen in a reflection on the splintering of the Protestant sects. Moreover, even the culminating moments of each of the three sections suggest the contingency of the Christian life. Monica's death and Augustine's, Augustine's bidding his readers to pray for the repose of her soul at the altar in Book 9, Augustine's final, moment, final moments at the altar in Book 10, and the proleptic Sabbath day's rest of Book 13. In order to account for these moments of letdown, so to speak, and to clarify the pattern discovered by Dr. Krauss, let us study each section of the Confessions again using the notions of distension, intention, and extension to signify the moments of exteriora, interiora together with inferiora, and superiora. Before we begin this study, however, let me clarify terms. The words distension, intention, and extension are taken from Book 11 of the Confessions. Distension is Augustine's term for the human mind's experience of time. The future does not yet exist, the past no longer exists, and the present is immeasurable, not even a fraction of a millisecond. Time, then, is measured by the distension of the mind into past and future. And this distension, this distraction from the present moment, characterizes our life. Eke, distentio est vita mea, says Augustine. Behold, my life is a distension. Usually translated distraction, but it's important to see the vocabulary there. In Christ, however, we are enabled to forget what is past, to stabilize the intention of our hearts upon what is before, and to extend our hearts towards that Sabbath rest for which we were made. In books one through nine, then, we see the first working out of the triformal scheme. Book one, which relates Augustine's infancy and boyhood, answers the question, ubi out quando in Ocane's fui? Where or when was I innocent? He never was, of course. Augustine started life already in that distended and distracted state, which is a condition of every human being since the fall. Book two, which begins to recount Augustine's adolescence, addresses particularly the lust of the flesh. Et quid erat quod me delectabat, nisi amare et amari. And what was it that delighted me? Except to love and be loved. This is the point of the, stolen, the story of the stolen pears. Augustine committed the theft because he, quote, loved the company of those with whom he did it. O nimis in amica amicitia, he interjects. O too unfriendly friendship. This companionship was the base friendship of pleasure, which Augustine knew about from Cicero. Cicero teaches that there are three kinds of friendship which are, from the lowest to the highest, the friendship of pleasure, the friendship of utility, and the friendship of virtuous activity and contemplation. For Augustine, therefore, this lowest type of friendship is characteristic of the lust of the flesh. Indeed, Cicero calls it swinish. 
Book three addresses particularly the lust of the eyes, which Augustine understood as curiosity. He characterizes his spiritual condition at the time, which was late adolescence, as a, quote, sacrilegious curiosity, end quote. An eager exploration not only of simulated emotion in the theater, but even of some ignoble abuse of the mass. Therefore, curiosity led him, quote, as he deserted God to the faithless abyss and to the deceitful service of devils, end quote. Indeed, in the very next passage, Augustine mentions a gang of older students called aversores, overturners, whose urbane delight it, it was to mock and deride the modesty of new students. Curiosity does much the same thing. It overturns the settled and customary, just as sophistry overturned the tradition of the ancient Greek city-state. For Augustine, it was a small step, therefore, to Manichaeism. Having overturned the faith and morals of his childhood, having urbanely mocked Holy Scripture, Augustine now was ready to explore a deceitful religion, Manichaeism, a simulation of true philosophy, a purveyor of phantasmata splendida, shining bright fantasies. Pride of life is the particular focus of book four. A detailed account of the death of a friend whom Augustine had deeply loved is given in order to show how absurdly contrary-minded he was in loving a human being beyond what a contingent creature can bear. O dementiam nescientem diligere homines humanitur ter. O madness that does not know how to love a human being human wise. Later he says, quote, for why did that pain pierce me very easily, even in my inmost parts? Unless because I had poured my soul into the sand by loving one who was going to die as if he was not going to die." End quote. He had not learned that God had made his friend, as well as every body and soul, and that God, in Augustine's words, quote, did not make them and depart, but they are from him and in him. Behold, where he is, their truth has its flavor. He is innermost to the heart, but the heart wanders, uh, wanders astray from him. Return to your heart, you double dealers, and cling to him who made you." End quote. Augustine had, had not learned what he later would cry to his readers, descendita ut ascendatis et ascendatis ad deum, cecidistis enem ascendendo contra deum. Descend that you may ascend and ascend to God, for you have fallen by ascending against God." End quote. Only by climbing down the ladder of pride would he be able to climb up the ladder of humility to God. But he had not learned this truth yet. What was prouder, he says, addressing the Lord, than that I, with a wondrous madness, was claiming that I was by nature what you are. End quote. Now Augustine had reached the limit of the distension and dispersion of his soul. He had poured out his soul into sand through the, through the spouts of the three lusts. As Augustine said earlier, these lusts are, quote, the heads of iniquity, 
which sprout up from the violent desire for being chief and for examining things critically and for feeling and experience, either from one of them or from two or from all together." End quote. However, at this nadir, as Augustine made his transition to manhood, God began to coax him down the ladder of pride by the destruction of his confidence in Manichaeism, in Manichaean teaching, by a short study of academic skepticism, and by an introduction to a fuller understanding of Christian doctrine through the instruction of St. Ambrose of Milan. For in pursuit of professional success, Augustine had moved from Africa, Africa to Italy, where he taught briefly in Rome, before receiving a prestigious appointment at the imperial court in Milan. Thus, by the end of Book Five, Augustine had entered the catechumenate, despite the fact that he did not yet understand that God is spirit and that evil is not a substance. A critical step in Augustine's ascent from pride, related in Book Six, was the unveiling of Holy Scripture by St. Ambrose in his preaching. During that same period, Augustine discovered the emptiness of his professional ambition and was able, by observation of a friend's addiction to the gladiatorial combats, to begin to comprehend the sin of curiosity. But the lust of the flesh, in its most concrete form, kept hold of him. And more generally, a plan for a philosophical retreat with friends foundered in the heavy seas of auxorial objection. Now a grown man, Augustine entered into philosophy, entered deeply into philosophy, and wrestled with the questions of God's immateriality and the insubstantiality of evil. In the first chapter of Book 7, Augustine explains that he now thought of God as, quote, incorruptible and inviolable and unchangeable, end quote, that he did not think that God was contained, quote, in the shape of a human body, end quote, but that he, quote, was not able to think of any substance except such as he was accustomed to see with these bodily eyes, end quote. Further reflection and discussion with friends led Augustine to understand God's absolute freedom and man's contingent freedom, steps that were essential for his final, complete rejection of Manichaeism and divination. Then finally, he was ready for the last step before his conversion, the discovery of, quote, certain books of the Platonists, end quote, a discovery which, by the way, Augustine placed in the very middle of the text of the Confessions. In these books, Augustine discovered the arguments he needed to know God's transcendence of the material order. This account of transcendence he describes as being identical with Christian belief that God is spirit and that God is the uncreated principle of creation. However, the Platonic books lacked the doctrine of the incarnation, passion, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, Augustine finally heard the voice within calling him to return into himself. He says, I entered and saw with, what, with, with, with whatever sort of eye of my soul above the same eye, he doesn't even really know how to describe it yet, above my mind an unchanging light, end quote a light that altogether transcended material light. But Augustine was driven back by that light. He was, quote, not yet the sort of man to see it, end quote. For he still dwelt in regione dissimilitudinis, in a region of unlikeness. So this first experiment with a platonic ascent to God had limited success. 
for Augustine still, still thought that material creation was evil. But now he learns this world where being and non-being are mixed together is nonetheless good. He discovered that, quote, whatever is, is good, and that that evil which he was seeking, whence it was, was not a substance, end quote. Therefore, he was then able to wend his way back again through creation and through his senses to his soul and to interior or common sense, which the beasts also share, then further to his reason, which he found still variable, and so to his understanding, which he was able to stabilize in a sprinkling of light from above. And recognizing that the immutable is an always preferable to the mutable, his understanding, quote, came through to that which is, to that which is, in a stroke of agitated sight, end quote. And so Augustine's second Platonic ascent was successful at least in Platonic terms, as James J. O'Donnell argues. But such a purely philosophical ascent, through a, though a genuine return ab exterioribus ad interiora, and ab inferioribus ad superiora, nevertheless did not solve the problem of sin. In fact, the Platonic books lacked Christ, in whom Augustine had come to believe as a catechumen. The Platonists lacked a mediator. Nowhere, Augustine confessions, confesses to God, did their books show, quote, the face of that pity, the tears of confession, your sacrifice, a troubled spirit, a contrite and humble heart, the salvation of your people, the city betrothed, the pledge of the Holy Spirit, the cup of our price, end quote. Thus was Augustine led to his conversion to Christ. In a pattern that we shall see again in books 10 and 12, his intellectual ascent to God was inevitably temporary, for not only the understanding, but also the will must be brought out of slavery, and such redemption can only be accomplished through Christ and his charity. Thus, book eight is the story of Augustine's conversion to Christ, especially through his learning and practice of continence. For even when the movement from the exterior to the interior had been made, and even when the partial movement to the superior has been accomplished from the inferior position of created being, nevertheless, the continuing and inevitable distension of the soul in creation must also be remedied. Much of the life of the soul remains to be called back and oriented inwards. This belongs to its inferiority too. The entire soul, not only the understanding, but also the senses, affections, and rational will, must be withdrawn from their limpet-like grip on sensuous reality and brought back to God. Thus, books seven and eight together represent one moment in the story of Augustine's conversion, the moment of the movement inwards and the return of the heart the return to the heart, to the self, the moment of intention, which succeeds the moment of distension. Book nine shows us the moment of extension in this first biographical portion of the Confessions. Upon his conversion, Augustine retired with friends for a retreat in Cassiciacum near Milan. There occurred the debates recorded in Augustine's early dialogues. However, Augustine does not focus on, the, on these debates at this point in the Confessions, but rather on the purification of his passions through meditation on the Psalms. 
In particular, he records his reading of Psalm 4, cum invocarem, when I called, he heard me, the God of my justice. In his meditation, it struck him forcefully and emotionally how far God had led him from his Manichaean errors. He now had appealed for mercy. He had come to love the fullness of truth. He had convicted himself of his sins, and he had seen, quote, the internal, eternal light, end quote. And he had found peace, quote, in the self-same, end quote, in id ipsum. Moreover, he both pitied and blamed his former deceivers, as well as his own former ignorance and sin. This represents the reordering of his passions that was necessary to make the promises of holy baptism. After his baptism in Milan, Augustine decided to return to Africa to live in celibate community. While he and his mother were awaiting a vessel in Ostia, the port of Rome, they had a mutual mystical vision that answered their question, what will the eternal life of the saints be? In their intellectual ascent, in form very like the Platonic ascent Augustine had already made, Augustine and Monica touched in their minds the regionem ubertatis indificientis, the region of unfailing fruitfulness, where, quote, life is wisdom, end quote. They touched it, quote, to a limited, to a limited extent with the entire stroke of the heart, end quote. However, they could not rest there in that moment of understanding which showed them the quality of the life of the saints. They drew breath and fell away to the temporal world, leaving, quote, the first fruits of the Spirit fastened behind them in paradise, end quote. Then quickly followed Monica's holy death and Augustine's deep grief and his recognition of the imperfection of the holiest life. Reflecting thus, Augustine remembered the blood of our Lord and appealed to his readers to remember the soul of his mother at the Lord's altar. Therefore, the moment of, of extension in this biographical portion of the Confessions is fulfilled. For extension means just this deposit of the first fruits of the Spirit in heaven, this suspiring after paradise, while yet in this region of unlikeness, and the proleptic participation in the eternal banquet by the body and blood of Christ. And so we see that the moment of distension is the natural state of the fallen soul attached to the sensuous things of creation by the three lusts. The moment of intention is the ingathering of all the powers of the soul by means of which it discovers the true God, its own nature, and the necessity of continence. The moment of extension begins in baptism and continues in the, in the living out of the baptismal life in contemplation of God, in a humble recognition of one's own frailty, and in a feeding at God's altar. We shall see these moments again in what now must be a brief consideration of the other two parts of the confession. Dr. Krauss called Book 10 the psychological section of the confessions, the part that moves ad interiora. Here, Augustine wishes to show the reader his present state as Bishop of Hippo, and he accomplishes this tax, task by searching for God's place. Where is my God? In this book, the moments of distension, intention, and, and extension occur within the soul itself. Distension is seen in the restless passage of Augustine's mind through his memory of sensible things, of sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and tactile experiences, 
and in his passage through the countless images stored up in his memory. It is seen in his discovery of the realities of the liberal arts, where they had been put away and stored in caves, to use his words, once the mind had recognized them as true. It is seen in memories that we remember, in the memory of feelings, in the recollection of absent things, even in recalling what we have forgotten. But in all this distension, God's place is not found. Therefore, Augustine finds that he must transcend memory itself so that he may push on to God. This, of course, is the beginning of the moment of intention. In order to reach above memory, Augustine must further consider the working of memory. In particular, he considers the phenomenon that when we look for something lost, like the woman looking for the coin in the parable, we cannot recognize it unless we remember it. But when he seeks God, Augustine continues, he seeks the happy life. Yet he has never known the happy life. How did he acquire knowledge of it? So that he might recognize it when he finds it. Yet the happy life is rejoicing in the truth. And the truth is God, whom therefore the memory does in some fashion contain. But where did the mind learn about God so that God might be contained in memory? The only answer that remains is that Augustine found God above his mind. Quote, where did I find you, Lord, that I might learn you, except in you above me? End quote. But sero te amavi, late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new, late have I loved you. Thus Augustine int introduces the other side of the moment of intention, the long self-examination of the soul's lusts, which you might have wondered why they were there, uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. For just as he could not rest in the vision of God in his second platonic intellectual ascent in book seven, but had to find a mediator between God and man to take away his sins, so here the mind cannot rest in its discovery of God's place but immediately returns to, ref to a reflection on his own sinful dispositions. Again, the logic is that the soul, created mind, is in an inferior position to God, uncreated mind. That inferior position involves not only an intellectual limit, but a moral limit. The will, even in the holiest persons, remains distended in the sensuous and cannot entirely escape it. In this middle psychological uh, section of the Confessions, the moment of extension begins with a summary of Augustine's explorations so far in Book 10, and with a reflection on the mediator Christ Jesus, through whom the human being lives out the baptismal life in contemplation of God, in a humble recognition of his own frailty, and in a feeding at God's altar. Thus it is that Augustine, after telling of his joy in contemplation, finishes this book of his confessions at the altar of God as God's priest. Dr. O'Donnell says, and I quote, the Eucharistic language with which book 10 closes, together with the liturgical setting of the conclusion of book nine, and the insistence at 10.3.3 that his true readership consists of those who are joined with him in the caritas of his church, compels the hypothesis that Augustine has presented us here with discourse that does not represent liturgical prayer but rather accompanies or more venturesomely embodies it. 
He will not tell us what, is, what it is like to participate in the Eucharist. He appears before us as he appears at the altar." End quote. Augustine said at the beginning of Book 10 that he wished to display himself to the reader as he was now as Bishop of Hippo. His delight in contemplation and his service at the altar were central to his extension towards God in Christ. The final exegetical section of the Confessions represents the movement, of super, the, the movement ad superiora in the triformal scheme of the entire work. Of course, the section itself is organized triformally too. Moreover, Dr. O'Donnell sees books 11, 12, and 13 as representing consecutively God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We might rather use Augustine's own characteristic characterization of the Holy Trinity and say that these three books consecutively represent essa, nosa, vela, being, knowing, willing. In addition to the philosophical movements exteriora, in, interiora together with inferiora and superiora. Book 11 is an exegesis of Genesis 1.1. In his exegesis, which he accomplishes explicitly in and with the church, Augustine considers being according to the notions of eternity and time. He discovers that, quote, time is nothing else than a distension. But of what thing I do not know, and yet it would be a marvel if it were not a distension of the mind itself, end quote. And so it proves. In pondering how he recites a psalm from memory, Augustine concludes, quote, the life of this action of mind is distended in memory because of what I have said, in expectation because of what I am going to say. Nevertheless, the present is present as my attentiveness, through which what was going to be passes so that it becomes past, end quote. Moreover, this holds true, quote, for the entire life of a man the parts of which are all the actions of the man. It holds true for the entire time of the sons of man, the parts of which are all the lives of man." End quote. Distension of the mind in time, then, is the spiritual condition of man, his mode of being. And, being a, and even a bishop must confess, quote, I have leapt down into times whose order I know not, and my thoughts are torn to pieces by turbulent diversities, the most intimate bowels of my soul, until I should flow together into you, Lord, cleansed and serene because of the fire of your love." End quote. In Book 12, Augustine asks the church to follow him as he extends his exegesis to Genesis 1, 1 to 2. He interprets heaven and earth as two timeless but created beings the heaven of heavens and invisible unformed matter. Quote, two certain things, one near you, Lord, the other next to nothing, end quote. From the latter, God would create the heaven and earth that we see around us. The former, however, was for God himself and was, quote, so formed that without any failure of contemplation, without any interval of change, it enjoys eternity and immutability, end quote. It is, quote, the intellectual heaven, where knowing all at once, nosa simul, is characteristic of understanding, knowing not in part, not in a riddle, not in a mirror, but entirely, manifestly, face to face, not now this, not now that, 
but knowing all at once, nosa simul, without any change of times, end quote. quote. It is, quote, the house of God, the rational and intellectual mind of God's pure city, our mother, which is above and is free and is eternal in the heavens, end quote. It is the place of our perfect knowing. And Augustine concludes this portion of his exegesis by praying, quote, let me enter, to, enter into my bed and sing love songs to you, Lord, groaning ineffable groans in my pilgrimage and remembering Jerusalem, my heart extended to her above. And let me not be turned away until you gather together the whole that I am from its dispersion and deformity into her peace, the peace of my dearest mother, where exist the first fruits of my spirit, whence those things are sure for me." End quote. However, just as Augustine was borne down from the vision of God in his second Platonic Ascent in Book 7, for he had not embraced Christ, and as he was weighed down from his contemplation of the place of God in Book 10 because of his sins, so now Augustine must ascend from, he from the heaven of heavens because the difficulty and strangeness of his exegesis elicits criticism in the church. Since our mode of being is distension in time, not every Christian will be able to follow Augustine in his exegesis, reaching even for a moment the place where knowing is all, is it, is all at once, nosa simul. Our knowing is in part, and in a riddle, and in a mirror, because of our mode of being. And our fallen nature can lead to hateful dissent if charity, as well as attention to method, does not govern our interpretations of scripture. Thus the exegesis of Genesis uh, 1, 1 through 2, has shown us the moment of what we might call ecclesial intention, in which the church learns both the end of her knowing in the heaven of heavens and the condition of her knowing in this distended life on earth. The final moment of philosophical movement, extension, Augustine shows us in book 13 by a meditation on the rest of the first chapter of Genesis. The exegesis lingers for a while on Genesis 1 2 C, et spiritus dei feribatur super aquas, and the Spirit of God was born above the waters. Augustine interprets the waters as the abyss of our fall from grace, as our distension in time, as our sinfulness. De fluxit angelus, de fluxit anima hominis, et indica verunt abyssum. The angel fell down, the soul of man fell down, and they demonstrated the abyss." End quote. His, his language is, is just wonderful. <laughs> the Holy Spirit hovers above this dismal abyss, us, um, that we may have light. The Holy Spirit, too, is God's gift. And it is by this gift that we are restored to order in our place of rest by love, which is the proper motion and substance of our willing. Baptism, too, is the Holy Spirit's work, by which the body of Christ is augmented in time, as are also the virtues he has poured into our hearts to be our pledge and comfort in time. The point of Augustine's lingering on this verse now becomes clear. For the rest of his exegesis of Genesis 1 is an allegory of ecclesial life. Holy Scripture, the two cities, to use a later distinction of Augustine's, 
knowledge, wisdom, and good works, the sacraments, the preachers of the Lord, and miracles, the Christian faithful, man as free spiritual judge, the participation of every Christian in such judgment, the literal and allegorical interpretations of scripture, the support that we all should give to the clergy, and the goodness of creation. Therefore, by this exegesis, Augustine makes it clear that the Holy Spirit creates the means for the extension of our willing towards the heaven of heavens by means of the life of the church. Through the church, the Holy Spirit fires our will that we may ascend to our final, rest, final fulfilling rest and peace. In these last three books of the Confessions, then, we find the triformal pattern, exteriora, interiora with inferiora, and superiora, supplemented by the pattern essa nosa vela. And we find it elucidated in an ecclesial way by means of an exegesis of Holy Scripture. Human life, in its fallen state, our mode of being now in this world, is merely natural, distended in time and attached by the mouths of its lusts to the sensible things of creation. This is the world in which the church does her work. But the best activity of human nature, contemplation, the stable knowing of eternity, was made for the intellectual city above, though our contemplation will only be stabilized there in the happy life to come. Contemplation of the word of God teaches us the existence of this city, and through meditation on scripture, we can rise to that city as a kind of first fruits. However, because of, this, of the distension of our minds and time, our intention on scripture is partial, and many interpretations arise which can only be reconciled in the church by charity. Finally, the extension of Christian life towards the heaven of heavens is made possible by the ministry, sacraments, teaching, and good works of the church. This life it is that creates the means of our return to the intellectual city above. So to conclude, St. Augustine uses a triformal pattern to organize the three major sections of his confessions. The same pattern is also used as a principle of organization within each section of the work. The pattern is the philosophical movement from exterior things to interior things, and from these interior things viewed as inferior to superior things. This pattern can also be characterized by the three fundamental dispositions potential to the soul, distension, intention, and extension. In the Confessions as a whole, the first moment is seen in St. Augustine's memories of the events of his own life. The second moment is seen in his examination of his own soul at the time of writing the book, when he was already a bishop in the church. The third moment is seen in Augustine's meditations on Holy Scripture. In the biographical section, the first moment, distension, is seen in the sinful life that Augustine led until he became a man. The second moment, intention, can be seen in the mature inward focus of Augustine upon the truth, which involved the search for Christ. The third moment, extension, is seen in Augustine's baptism, Christian contemplation, and entry into the life of the church, especially the mass. In the psychological section of the, of the confessions, Distension is seen in Augustine's wandering through the innumerable fields and caves and caverns, his words, of his memory. Intention is seen in his withdrawal from the into the citadel of his mind and his discovery of God above it, as well as the necessary resulting examination of conscience. 
Extension is seen in the sweetness of his contemplation and service at the altar. In the exegetical section of the Confessions, distension is discovered as the condition of human being. Intention is seen in contemplation of the word of God and in the charity necessary for peace in the church. Extension is seen in the life of the church, which is meant to carry the Christian soul to eternal contemplation of God. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.